millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and once more I'm at Shay Hart with Peter Hart. And I'm with you, Gary. Morning, Pete. Morning. And uh, we're a bit back to the future today. Uh, yeah, we've gone back in time. Because today the podcast is about the Battle of Dogger Bank, which precedes Jutland. And yet we've done a whole series on Jutland. Yeah, you'd have thought we'd have done this before, but, you know, it just came to our mind. We wanted a nice, short, snappy one, didn't we? Or filler. Or filler, as we call it. Now, let's, we have to set the scene. Uh, so those of you who've listened to all the Jutland ones, you can uh, go and make a tea. Go make up tea, yeah. yeah. Actually, don't make tea, because it's ghastly brown muck. Make a cup of coffee. It's much nicer. I've seen what your coffee does to your wooden spoon, though. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Right. Now, uh, so let's set the scene. Popular opinion. What did popular opinion think would happen at the start of the war, August 1914? Well, they thought there was going to be a huge naval battle which would resolve the command of the seas within a matter of days of August. And did the Germans fall in with that plan? Uh, well, they. Dis- <laughs> I think... You, you've put that in uh, a number of ways, but I think the best way of saying it is they declined to sacrifice their navy at the altar of popular British sentiment. So they kept it safety in harbour instead. Now, German strategy, they're looking to achieve a land victory. The Early Gr- land victory. The Schieflin plan, the smashing blows on France uh, before they turn on the Russians. Uh, in view of this, there's no need to risk the fleet. Uh, uh, what's the fleet going to be doing? Well, it's got a key role. It's defending the open German flanks from the possibility of coastal assault in the Baltic or North Sea. The commander-in-chief of the High Seas Fleet... Who's that, Gary? That's one Admiral Friedrich von Ingenohl. Not bad, not bad. And uh, he was ordered not to risk his ships, and he uh, duly complied. Now, the Germans, they thought the British would still be committed to the idea of a close blockade. They'd like Nelson when he was off, you know, they were, for years they were off the French ports or Spanish ports, and the idea of a close blockade up and down... Um, 
And 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 what did they? What? Why did? Why did they quite like the idea? Well, because that? that offered the chance of successfully launching submarine and destroyer attacks against uh, the anticipated British blockade in the Heligoland Bight, uh, and that 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 whetted their appetite. Yeah, yeah, drip, 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 drip of losses. Uh, the torpedoes and mines would soon trim down the uh, the Grand Fleet to the size where the German high seas fleet could take them all. Now, even when it became apparent that the Royal Navy was not going to provide an easy target off the coast of Germany, the original tactic of trying to erode the Grand Fleet through mines and torpedoes remained in force. And that was of uh, uh, concern to the British. Yeah. Most of all, to who? Uh, Jellicoe. Yeah, Admiral Sir John Jellicoe. One of our all-time heroes, uh, to me anyway. Uh, he commanded the Grand Fleet from August and he, he was aware of the threat posed by torpedoes and mines and he resolved to act with, as we've said before, great caution. He was going to avoid being drawn into some sort of submarine trap and he would maintain a distant blockade. So where, well, how do you, well, how do you do a distant blockade of Germany? Or is Great Britain blockading it anyway? Yeah, I mean, you could argue that. Uh, the English Channel would be blocked by a combination of mines, light destroyer forces and a pre-dreadnought squadron. Yeah, it's only, what, is it 15, 20 miles across? Yeah, and Jellicoe reasoned that this gave the Royal Navy control over the world's oceans with only the North Sea to be contested between the British and the German fleets. Yes, yeah, because he would have the main fleet based at Scapa Flow, the Orkney Islands, and that would block out the northern exit. So you've got the southern exit, which is the English Channel, and then you've got the big sea bit at the top, where all the splashy bits are. Yeah. If it gets too technical for your listeners... Oh, me indeed. Now, for a few months, other than a couple of skirmishes... Little of real consequence happened in the naval war until... Are we talking the Battle of Heligoland? I'm sure we'll be back trying to persuade listeners that that was a big battle in about six months' time. Uh, Until in November 1914, von Ingenol summoned up the nerve to begin a series of attacks on the east coast of Britain, conducted by the battlecruisers of the first scouting force, commanded by Rear Admiral Franz von Hipper. So what are they trying to do? Well, these raids were intended to provoke an unconsidered response from the British that might allow the chance of destroying isolated elements, and that's the important part, isolated elements of the Grand Fleet, or draw them over newly laid minefields. Now, since October 1914, Vice Admiral Sir David Beatty, he commanded the first battlecruiser squadron, so he's Hipper's opposite number, if you like. He'd been detached to Cromarty, Cromarty 4th. Yeah, and... Uh, no, actually, not Cromarty Fourth Cromarty. <laughs> and that made them promising candidates for a German ambush, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, tasty, tasty. Uh, t- well, a tasty morsel. Yeah, the British did have one huge theoretical advantage in this game of cat and mouse. Yeah, well, the, 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 the British had copies of the secret, top secret naval ciphers, German naval ciphers, and they'd been passed by, I think it was the Russians in 1914, and uh, they'd set up a special department. What was it called? Room... 40. Oh, that, what a name, redolent of romance, Well, drama. it's very imaginative because I was in room 27. <laughs> <laughs> Don't confuse the listener. Now, that had been set up to decode the German signals augmented by the use of wireless directional stations to locate the German ship's transmissions. That's all really clever stuff. Can you explain the wireless directional stations? Yeah, they, you have a station and it directs the wireless 
two stations, different places. They get a line, and it's where the line crosses. Crosses, exactly. Now, the first German hit-and-run raid on Yarmouth, made on the 3rd of November, came rather too early for Room 40, but they were ready for the next attempt on the 16th of December. Sometimes early warnings can be... uh just as much a problem as no warning. What, what, what do I mean? Well, in this particular case, the intelligence was imprecise and the Admiralty did not realise that HIPAA would be supported by the whole of the high seas fleet. This is for the raid on the 16th of December, yeah. Yeah, they rashly interfered with Jellicoe's intended dispositions to insist that he deploy just beat his four battlecruisers and the six dreadnoughts of the second battle squadron with accompanying light forces. Yeah, they always have accompanying light forces, obviously, yeah. Now, both sides were, in effect, attempting to trap the other. But in the event, bad weather and poor visibility would mean that the resulting operations were inconclusive. Uh, for everybody? Well, you could argue <laughs> except for the people of people of Scarborough, Hartlepool and Whitby, who found the German battlecruisers' shells crashing down amongst them. Yeah, but that... that, that uh, and how did the great British public react to this? Well, there was an outcry. No! Of course there was. Didn't, didn't they consider the tactics? Didn't they think, well, the North Sea's open, but the rest of the seas are ours? Did... did what did they do? No, the question was really a very simple one. With the most powerful and expensive navy in the world, how was it possible for an enemy to bombard their homeland unscathed? Yeah, well, that, yes. Well, it's not as simple as that, is it? Uh, the, the, to their credit, the Admiralty rode out the storm. The, 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 you cannot guarantee the uh, security of the whole East Coast. How long is the East Coast, Gary? 78 foot. That's a very big map you're looking at. <laughs> well, it, it, but it, it's a good point, isn't it? Because you can't be everywhere no. at once, no matter the size of and your you can only you can only see about 20, 20 miles either way. So, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's impossible. What they did do, however, was move Beatty and the battle cruises from Cromarty to a new base a little further south at Rosyth in the Firth of Force. That's sort of diagonally opposite from Edinburgh. Edinburgh, yeah. Now, this would enable them to respond more quickly should the alarm be sounded again. Now, for, for the Germans, uh, that, that raid, 16th of the, 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 the raid was a bit, well, it's a sort of defiant gesture. It was a sort of near disaster as well, but it, they also saw it as, it was an opportunity. It, it was sort of, it could have gone any which way or what, couldn't it? It so really could. It was all things to all men, is basically yeah, all, what you're saying. Uh, what about lady sailors? But it boosted morale throughout their fleet and counterbalanced the growing feeling that they were not just... Uh, they were not justifying their place in the overall German war yeah, effort. Now you've got to remember when we are, we're in November. Remember the, the first Battle of Eve's happened. The French and Germans have been battering 17 shades of hell out of each other on the thing. Even the British by this time were involved in the first Battle of Eve's. It, you know, it, they, 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 you can see that the, the people in the fleet, it's really expensive, that fleet, but what are they doing? Yeah, and added to all of that, they couldn't resist trying to pull the lion's tail once more. Oh! On the 23rd of June, January. 19... January. Sorry, 23rd of January. <laughs> 23rd of January, 19... I it began that. with J. Uh, hang on, at least I was going to get the year right. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's move on. Pot, kettle and black. <laughs> Have I been known to get the year wrong? Yes. Now, on the 23rd of January, 1915, Ingenol sent out Hipper's first scouting group. What were they? Come That's on, come on. Time to name Saedlitz, them. Yes. The Moltke. Yes. The Deerflinger. Yeah. And the Blucher. Was the Blucher like the others? Uh, no. 
It's a hybrid, strange, yeah, it was a heavy weird cruiser. Trip, wasn't it? Well, it was the first answer to the Invincibles, and they didn't really know what they were doing. So it's sort of half a battle cruiser and half a heavy cruiser. Now, in addition, they were accompanied by four light cruisers of the second scouting group and 18 destroyers. That's our entire Navy now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid so. Um, now, they're, they're, what they're going to do is try and entrap any British forces sweeping through the Dogger Bank area. Right. Well, well now, uh, who knows about this? Well, Room 40, and of course they warned the Admiralty that the game was afoot. Oh, it's just like Sherlock Holmes. Although there could be no precision as to what the Germans intended. Or where, or what. Yeah. Now, once again, the Admiralty's response can be perceived as being optimistic. That afternoon... Beatty sailed, accompanied by the first battle cruiser squadron. Uh, can I say these? They're easy. Yeah. Lion. Yes. Tiger. Yes. And Princess Royal. The second battle cruiser uh, squadron, which was commanded by Rear Admiral Sir Archibald Moore, and, and that was New Zealand and Indomitable. And the four light cruisers of the first light cruiser squadron. Don't you dare! Commanded by Commodore Sir William Goodenough. Oh, you th- I thought you were going to say, and what were they, Pete? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> now, at 0700 on the 24th of January, Beatty was to rendezvous with the Harwich Force, commanded by Commodore Reginald Turwitt. Uh, that's quite a big force of three light cruisers and 35 destroyers, Gaza. And they were to meet just to the north of Dogger Bank. Now, uh, there was some distant, I think it's just about irrelevant, isn't it, uh, support. What was that? Well, that was provided to the north by the seven pre-dreadnoughts of the 3rd Battle Squadron and the 3rd Cruiser Squadron. We're probably not going to hear of them again. Now, the Grand Fleet sailed as well, but they're they're not going to arrive till the afternoon of the 24th of January at the earliest. Uh, Now, so what happens? So you've got the Germans and the British essentially sailing towards each other in the Dogger Bank area. So what happens? At quarter past eight on the 24th of January, the German cruiser SMS Kohlberg sighted and opened fire on the British light cruiser HMS Aurora and the Harwich Force. Yeah. Now, hopeful of easy victory... Admiral Hipper turns his battle cruisers towards the gunfire, gunfire, but within moments, SMS Stralsund, good pronunciation, eh, Gary, uh, spotted a large amount of smoke to the northwest. Now, <laughs> what could that mean? Well, Hipper knew a strong British force was steaming towards them, and this is Admiral Franz von Hipper of the First Scouting Group. The presence of such a large force indicated the proximity of further sections of the British fleet, especially as wireless intercepts revealed the approach of 2nd Battlecruiser Squadron. They were also reported by Blücher at the rear of the German line, which had opened fire on a light cruiser and several destroyers coming up from astern. The battlecruisers under my command found themselves in view of the prevailing that was east-northeast wind, in the windward position, and saw in an unfavourable situation from the outset. You'll notice I forgot his accent. (laughs) (laughs) Now, at 07.35, so that's pretty early on, um, um, uh, uh, that's a different time. Yeah, it's a different time. That's interesting. Anyway, he cautiously sets a course towards southeast and Wildshaven. Uh, he's looking for clarification as to what's happening, you know. Uh, now, uh, the, what's happening on the British side? Uh, can I just go back to the time? There is a difference in time. Uh, the, the Germans used a different time, so I think it was possibly quarter past seven in the morning of the 24th of January. What ebbs? 
You just confused me hopelessly now. Good. <laughs> that was your aim, wasn't it? So, uh, at 0750, Beatty, what does he sign? He cites the German battlecruisers at a distance of some 35,000 yards. How many miles is that? A lot. It's probably about 28, 29 miles. Yeah, something like that. And uh, he commenced a determined stern chase. As a touch of the spur... Oh, the old hunting... Beatty signalled a speed of 29 knots, which, as he well knew, was one knot faster than the design speed of even his fastest ship. Now, so you've got all the engines they're straining uh, to the utmost to, to get their speed up. Uh, well, because it's 27 knots, the Lion and Princess Royal surge ahead. They manage to reach 27 knots. They can't reach 29. That's ludicrous. Uh, who do they leave behind then? We can work this out quite simply. Well, the uh, more venerable New Zealand and Indomitable. Yeah, they're the older ones. Uh, they just can't reach those speeds. They're more like 24 knots. That's what the speed they're they gradually. They began to overhaul Hipper, who was hamstrung by the Blucher's maximum speed, which was 23 knots. That's slower than 24 knots. Now, again, the timings are, are changing here. At 0852, and I think that's probably 0752, the Lion was able to fire a first-ranging shot with her 13.5-inch guns at a distance of about 20,000 yards. The angle of the British approach meant that their funnel smoke was blown clear, while the German rangefinders were partially blinded by their own smoke. Yeah, now that's that's bad, isn't it? Uh, the German armament of 11-inch and 12-inch guns, it, it also, I mean, British, some of the, they've got a shorter range and they could only return fire at, uh, it is it is the right time, so 0911. Uh, now, midshipman John Ouvry, he's on the Tiger, HMS Tiger, beautiful-looking ship. I might put a picture of it. It's supposed to be one of the best-looking ships ever. And he recalled his initial nerves during the opening exchanges of fire. And this is what midshipman John Ouvry says. My first sight of German vessels was re really was smoke on the horizon and then masts. The captain was in the conning tower and I was outside looking for some marines. We sighted the Germans. They opened fire on us and we on them. The first salvo blew my hat off. <laughs> then, to my relief, the captain said to messengers to say, Come inside the conning tower now, which I did. <laughs> Conning tires are sort of armoured, it's the, it's the armoured defence for the command team, not like the bridge, which is pretty open. As the British battlecruisers came into range, they each initially concentrated their fire on the blue cut. Why? Well, because it was the rear ship of the line. So that's the one they can reach first, yeah. The blue was not really a battlecruiser no, at all. We've alluded that, yeah. to We've that. alluded to this. Uh, it, it, it was this strange hybrid, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was some confusion in the allotment of the five British battlecruisers against their four opponents. You're not kidding. <laughs> At 0935, Beatty signalled, engage the corresponding ships in the enemy's line. Now, what he intended was that the rear two ships were meant to concentrate on the blue while the other three took on their opposing numbers. Yeah, whatever that means. Oh, it's a Morse message for... However, this was not evident, and Captain Henry Pelly aboard the Tiger joined the Lion in concentrating on the Seidlitz, leading lead the German yeah, line. Yeah, leading, isn't it? Yeah. Now, as a result, this left the Mulker untroubled as she joined the Seidlitz in firing at the Lion. Oh. Um, it, there's also one other problem with the, the British. Uh, what's that? 
I think you're referring to the gross inaccuracy. Well, what? Well, why? 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 Well, why? Because why? The, they're very inexperienced gunners on the Tiger, and they confused the cell, the the shell splashes generated by the fire of the lion with their own shells, and were thus unaware that they were firing some two miles. Two miles. It's that's right, two Gary. Miles. Uh, two miles. That, I mean, that's that's a miss. Over the Sadlitz. Yeah. Wow. Uh, to make matters worse, the, the Durfling is also firing at the line because uh, the, the, the Germans, the German gunners, they take a more pragmatic view. They're smoke all over the bloody place as far as they're concerned. And they, they shoot at the ones they can see. And who can they see? They can see the lion, so they shoot at the lion. Um, now, uh, the lion did s- secure one really significant hit on the, sa- on, on, on the, her assailants. Uh, so what was that? And this is important for, it's important for Jutland, never mind for uh, this battle. Well, a 13.5 inch shell crashed down on the Sadlitz at about 0950, tearing through the quarterdeck and partially penetrated the uh, Babette armour of the aft turret. Oh, now this is a disaster. Why is it a disaster? Well, the, the shell burst ignites the cordite charges in the working chamber, and, and that triggers a flash, because this stuff, when it goes off, it could, can trigger a flash, that, and it spreads like an instant to the magazine handling room, and then up into the turret above. And and and, 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 and what do men do when the, 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 the flames are buff, searing flames? What do they do? What do they do? What do they do? Well, they tried to escape. So uh, ow, uh, ow. Well, they opened the door that ah. led to the adjacent turret, and thus ah. they exported the disaster and condemned their neighbours. Yeah, because the, the flash went through the open door into the next turret. Uh, and it killed some 159 men, and uh, the outright disaster of a magazine explosion was only avoided by the rapid flooding of the after magazine. That is quite an instant. That, I mean, the, the, just think of that, 159 people killed just like You've that. You've mentioned this before. When things go wrong at sea, they go badly wrong. They do. They go. Now, midshipman John Oovery, he's on the Tiger and he's watching it. He says this, for the first part of the action, we were Arthur got away with it. We were firing at them without being fired on ourselves. It meant the lion was bound to get hit sooner rather than later. I could see the smoke and flame of shells hitting her. Ooh, right. Well, at 10.01, uh, a, series, a series of shells did crash down on the line. This is what he's talking about. And and there, another midshipman, Philip Vaughan, he has an even better view of what's happening because he's up on the foretop of HMS line. And you're going to tell us what uh, Philip Vaughan saw. My job was to spot our fall of shells, which was very hard to do, owing to their funnel smoke and also the smoke of their gunfire. I could see their shells coming towards us through my glasses and also the splinters after their shells burst, which was rather disconcerting. Several times I got soaked with the spray which their shells threw up when falling short and ahead of us. When we were hit, the whole ship seemed to stagger and shake itself, quite a curious sensation. A shell or a splinter struck the topmast about six feet above my head. Wow, that's quite, yeah. Now, far below him, that, so he's out, almost out in the open, but it, it's also, you see, the thing about a ship is you're not safe wherever, where, if things go wrong, you, yeah. Anyway, deep down below, in, I'd like to think, if we're looking at you, and you're playing the part now of HMS Lion, it, that bloke was perched on the top of your head, and the next one is deep down in your bowels. And this is Sub-Lieutenant Roger Selby, and he's at his action station, where's that? 
Well, he's in the uh, transmitting station from which orders and ranges were sent up to the guns. Yeah, and this always- is what Sub-Lieutenant Roger Selby says. I was down in the bottom of the ship and in, in the terror of my life, there was a shell room underneath and they used to drop projectiles by mistake occasionally. They weighed half a tonne. And at once... <laughs> So at once I thought he was just hitting a miner, a torpedo. <laughs> Having been hit about five times in ten seconds and with a 15-degree list on, with the water swishing about above, they were only putting a fire out. We all thought we were done for. And that's the thing. They're trying to put out a fire up above. You can hear the water because fire hose, I mean, great huge hydrants. I mean, people don't, people were drowned in, in ships sometimes by the uh, by the hydrants. Wow. Now, listing with damaged port engines, the Lion lost speed and began to fall out of the line of battle, with the result the Tiger took over in the vanguard. Midshipman John Overy once more noticed an immediate difference, and this is what he said. We'd, we had a hit very close to us as a shell burst under the deck of the conning tower on which the captain and ourselves were standing. It shook us badly and killed some men on the decks below. There was a certain amount of smoke in the conning tower. I think on an occasion like that, you're sort of pulverised. You carry on automatically doing your duty. You're frightened, but you don't, you don't say so. You're very tense. <laughs> very tense. You do your job completely and efficiently. At the same time, your nerves are all tense. The captain turned round and said, ah, Keep steady, boys. And you've got to remember, he's a midshipman. He's a young lad. Now, midshipman Henry Blagrove was at his station in a 3.5-inch turret, 13.5-inch turret aboard the Tiger. And this is what midshipman Henry Blagrove of HMS Tiger said. Their ships, uh, their shells were all around us. And just ahead, the water was stiff with them. A good number burst in the water, making an awful din. My turret was missed by inches over and over again. There were large splinters of shell on the roof of my turret and also around the babette. I was knocked out of my sighting hood three times by wind of projectiles passing close and got quite peevish with it. Spray also worried me a lot, fogged my sights, so the trainer couldn't find the target for a minute or so. The flash of the foremost guns hurt my eyes considerably. I had to duck every now and then, when a shell passed over and kept on calling myself a silly ass. Well, I think that's a good moment to have a little bit of a break and allow our adverts, adverts to play. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, at this stage... Everything was still going relatively well for BT, but then came a disastrous series of interlinked errors. That's uh, it's funny when BT's in charge of a battle, there often seems to be uh, a disastrous series of interlinked errors, as we noticed at Jutland. Did we? Still, he's Winston Churchill's hero, so he must have been brilliant. At ten fifty-four, believing somewhat erroneously that he had sighted a periscope on the starboard bow of the Lion. He ordered a radical 90-degree turn to port to avoid the much-feared submarine ambush in accordance with the Grand Fleet policy. That's fair enough. And and do you know what? That's un- an understandable error. Yeah, but minutes later, he le- realised that this was too sharp a turn and ordered course northeast and added, attack the rear of the enemy. Uh, now, he meant for his faster ships to hunt down Hipper's fleeing squadron. But... Uh, uh, I can see some ambiguities in that. Because uh, uh, what's the rear? Uh, and he, he fatally confuses his second-in-command. That's Rear Admiral. You mentioned him earlier. Sir Archibald Moore, who was on the, uh, aboard HMS uh, New Zealand. Um, now, so what could he see when he looks out of his uh, conning tower? Well, all he could see to the northeast was the struggling blue cup. So what happens? What happens? What happens? Well, as a result, all the British battlecruisers abandoned their chase no! and, co- and no! concentrated no! <laughs> on the Blucha, accompanied by the light forces. Moore has been much criticised for his lack of initiative, given the fairly obvious battle situation. He well, failed to follow <laughs> in the hallowed traditions of the Royal Navy in seeking the utter destruction of the whole of the enemy. Yeah, squadron. we've talked about this before. This, this, this is... This is not what the, the the Royal Navy and the Nelsonic example is to seek. You do you don't just sink a ship, you sink all of them. Uh, and uh, Beatty, how does Beatty react? Well, he's horrified when he realised what was happening. His attempt to mimic Nelson by sending a signal of engage the enemy more closely was ironically thwarted as it did not appear in the rather more prosaic contemporary signal book. The alternative was the much less inspiring keep nearer to the enemy. Sounds more like dating advice. And this was even more confusing as the Blucher was the nearest German ship. Oh, bloody hell. Is, I mean, you can just imagine. I mean, Beatty must have been hopping mad. Moore's made a terrible mistake. Beatty's made two or three mistakes. Um, by the time he gets control of his ships, what's happened? What's happened, Gary? What's happened? The German cru- battlecruisers, they're long gone, aren't they? And uh, this is Lieutenant Alexander Boyle aboard HMS New Zealand. We then attacked the Blucher and fired on and off at her 
until 11.50 with ranges decreasing to 5,500 yards when she blew up and sank. It took an awful lot of shells to sink her and in the last half hour shells from our four ships were continually hitting her and she was generally on fire. It was really a very pretty sight but pretty nasty for them. In the end we could see all their men fallen in on the quarterdeck. Now, this must have been just hell on earth. I mean, you've got to realise you're on this ship, it's been pounded to bits, and then that sploshy thing, what month was it, Gary? Can you remember? January. Yeah. What do you think this sploshy thing was? Wet. Brilliant. And very cold? Yes. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to do any sort of silly accents here. This is an, an anonymous crewman aboard the SMS Blucher, and he says this. Some of the shells fell into the sea, raising vast columns of water. With strange fascination, we watched the deadly water spouts creeping nearer. Then the shells with a horrible droning hum fell thick and fast from the sky. The electric plant soon was destroyed and the ship was in darkness. There was horrible confusion below. Shells plunged through the decks, boring their way into the stokehold. And as the bunkers were half empty, they burnt merrily. Later, the trajectory flattened and holes were torn in the Blucher's sides. The shells reaching the engine rooms licked up the oil and sprayed it around in blue-green flames. The men huddled together in the dark compartments, but the shells found them. Men were flung to a horrible death amidst the machinery. As a broadside struck the Blucher, the warship rocked like a cradle. Finally, the bell which rang for church parade was tolled. The survivors crept up to the decks, some through shot holes, and sang the Wacht am Rhein. Permission was given to leave the ship. The British fire now had ceased, and destroyers were ready for rescue work. The Blucher turned wearily over and disappeared. Now, there's a famous picture of that, which we will definitely put up. That's, it's the most one of the most stunning pictures ever taken, I think. They're all running over the ship as it sinks down. Now, watching this was Yeoman of Signals, uh, Frederick Ramsey. Now, he's aboard the destroyer Miranda. Uh, that's third destroyer flotilla. Part of the, I can't say it, Harwich Force. Harwich. Harwich, yeah. Uh, and they, they're part of the... They're all round the bloody Blucher by this toast. And he says this, Frederick Ramsey. The Blucher made her last effort, and it was a good one too. She dropped it all around us, anywhere but on the lean, black, zigzagging death that was waiting the moment to fire a torpedo. And we were actually splashed by the water thrown up by the exploding shells. The ship was hit by some fragments now and then, but not a man was hit. Wasn't it great? We got our torpedoes off, one of which got the Blucher with an awful explosion, and she stopped running and firing and started listing heavily to port. Uh, now, there's somebody else watching, uh, Henry Blagrove. We've talked about him, midshipman, young lad. He's watching from the Tiger, and he sees the coup de grace. You've got to remember what it was like, that bloke on the ship. Now, these people are just watching it. What does uh, Henry say? She was still firing now and then, but was being hit every few seconds, and shells were bursting all over her. She fired a torpedo at us, missing by a few yards, and then we let her have it. It must have been hell for a crew. She was white hot in parts and full of explosions. Her masts went, then her funnels, and we hit her with a torpedo, finally putting a salvo of six-inch shells into her. That's a secondary armament, isn't it? They're that close. Uh, Blucher uh, turns to turtle, they always turn over like that, uh, and sank at about 
10 past 12. Uh, she'd been hit, they reckon, by more than 70 heavy shells. Uh, now, f- watching this was uh, Yeoman of Signals Fred- Frederick Ramsey, HMS uh, Miranda, the one we just had. He's on the bridge of the Miranda watching. He says this. She was leaning well over. Funnels gone, masts all askew. The decks are massive, twisted steel, and the guns pointing at all sorts of different angles. Angles. Whilst through a huge gash in her starboard bow, we could see her inside was one blazing inferno. There was a number of, of her crew on deck as she gave a lurch further over. The fellows came toppling, tumbling and sliding down her side. That's the picture. It was sickening to watch them falling over, breaking their backs and limbs against the bilge keel and bouncing off into the water. Then she slowly went right over and floated absolutely up down for a few minutes with a crowd of half-demented sailor men standing on her bottom. Now the Luca sank slowly from under them, with no vortex or eddy, of eddy rather, just quietly went down, leaving a little wreckage and a mass of yelling Huns struggling for their lives in the icy water. They nearly all had life belts on, but the bitterly cold sea took its effect on many of them, and they gave it up and died. You don't have long in, in, in January North Sea, do you? No. Now, the Miranda edged forward in am- amongst the swarm of desperate men and began to rescue as many as possible by casting ropes and ladders over the side. Frederick Ramsey himself ran down to the deck to help. He could see many of the Germans in the water were badly wounded with gashed heads and broken limbs. And he goes on to say this. They swarmed round our sides like flies and it was very difficult getting them in. For every rope over there, there were about six of them hanging on, screaming to be pulled up. We just hauled and hauled and the weakest dropped off and struggled again, then became numbed and exhausted and slowly drowned. Their lifeboys keeping them afloat, but the men were too weak to hold their heads up. It was a bit touching, and even as I struggled and sweated and swore pulling them up, I could not help thinking that the swine would not have done the same for us. I think they would. They would have done. Uh, that's that. But that's the, the feelings of the time. Now, there then came an unfortunate intervention as a zeppelin accompanied by a seaplane appeared to drop several small bombs nearby. Reluctantly, the Miranda began to pull away, and once more, this is Yeoman of Signals Frederick Ramsey. We had to go ahead with about two dozen poor devils dragging alongside, the ropes twisted about their hands and gripped in their teeth. Our fellows still struggling to get them up, but it was no good. I had gone back to the bridge and watched the men obey the order to cut the ropes. The look on the dying Germans' faces was awful as they watched their only hope hacked off above their heads. Most of them gave up and struggled no more. Can you just imagine that, Gary? Just the, the, your last chance and you're in that freezing, dirty, great big ocean. Wow. Now, of the crew of 1,026 men serving aboard the Blucher, some 800 perished in that freezing cold January sea. I'm just going to say that number again. 800 perished. Perished. No, not wounded. Not, right. Yeah. Now, the other, the other German ships, they got away. But so, so how do we analyse this battle? Well, uh, they've only lost one ship, and that was the Blucher, which, to be fair, was a hybrid. But, but they, uh, were, they were forced to flee. Yeah, and that doesn't go down well with the Germans, I don't think. No, and on the 2nd of February, Admiral von Ingenol was summarily dismissed and replaced by Admiral Hugo von Pohl as commander of the High Seas Fleet. 
Oh, so Hipper doesn't get the blame. Uh, well, there's nothing really to blame him for, is it? But, but uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, d- d- does this lead to a big change in policy? It's not like when Shear takes over later. Well, not with regard to the deployment, or rather non-deployment of the fleet. Instead, the German Navy turned its attention to an expansion of the submarine campaign. Oh, well, that won't cause any trouble then. None at all. Now, Dogger Bank was a British victory of sorts, but there was also a great deal of disappointment, certainly for young Roger Selby on board the Lion. And this is Sub-Lieutenant Roger Selby. We were being towed back rather ignominiously and a, 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 and a bit of a mess all round. We knew the Blucher was sunk and were extremely fed up at only getting her when all their big battle cruisers were about and badly damaged. Well, sadly, it certainly was. Uh, in fact, we hardly considered it a victory, but on getting into harbour, we found ourselves little heroes. Everybody was cheering us as we came in up up into harbour. So, of course, since then we've been living it up, whatever they think of it, and not on our own ideas. In other words, they knew it hadn't been great. Uh, how does Beatty react? Well, he himself is actually distraught, and this is Vice Admiral David Beatty. The disappointment of that day is more than I can bear to think of. Everybody thinks it was a great success, when in reality it was a terrible failure. I had made up my mind that we were going to get four, the lot, and four we ought to have got. Yeah, and it, there's, a, there's command and control failures. They're not all Beatty's fault. I mean, you can definitely point the figure at Moore as well, but command and control was definitely poor throughout the whole bottle, battle for the British. Marksmanship as well, Yeah, we poor. commented on that during the Jutland series, didn't we? The thing is, though, it's enough of a success. The Battle of Dogger Bank, it's enough of a success to, to sort of shroud some real causes of concern. And we've just led on to one of What's the main, well, one of the main causes? Well, you've said it. The gunnery standard was inadequate. Many crew members were convinced that they were raining shells down on their enemies, mistaking the German gun flashes for the detonation of their shells, which were in fact whistling harmlessly well over the intended targets. Okay. And we mentioned earlier, up to two miles beyond its intended Which is target. not close. Now, with the exception of the short-range demolition of the Blucher, the British ships had scored only about seven hits. Now, in response, the German first scouting force, that's the German battlecruisers, had thudded home <laughs> some 22 heavy-caliber shells onto the Lion and Tiger. Uh, now, the... the Let's let's not be too. This is 1915. It's January 1915 as well. Um, other excuses? Yes, you can make some excuses. Their lack of experience under battle conditions, the poor visibility caused by pools of smoke and spray from the German shells. But you're too kind, Gary. I'm not going to have this. It's still poor in the extreme. Yeah, and the German gunners had overcome similar handicaps. Worse, because they had the, the worst visibility. What about Jellico? I mean, remember. He's ultimately responsible. Yeah, and he was aware of the problems, but it was difficult to secure increased long-range practice for his battlecruisers in the relatively cramped and narrow confines of the uh, fourth. Well, so they could have always just practiced their gunfire in the first and fourth and broken every window in Edinburgh, and that would have been a laugh, to be yes. fair. Not, not for the residents of uh, Edinburgh. I only quote you back at yourself, bugger the people of Edinburgh. That's oh, yeah, I, I did say that. <laughs> Now, on their side, the Germans had been alarmed by the near destruction of the Seidlitz. What, they noticed? Well, after a careful investigation, I'm going to say that again, a careful 
investigation, <coughs> considerable anti-flash precautions were introduced to try and prevent such a flash travelling anywhere between the turret gun house, the handling chamber and the magazine. So well, they're learning from it. Um, was this perfect, the measures they brought in? Oh, no. By no means was it perfect, but they were considerably in advance of the situation still appertaining aboard the British capital ships. Here, there were no safety improvements in working practices. Uh- now, I remember this from Jotland. There's something else. That, 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 that's not all, is it? Um... No. In an effort to improve their rate of fire, the British gunners began to take suicidal shortcuts in the magazine. Did they know they were suicidal? No, they just thought it was a shortcut. It was going to enable them to be quicker. The magazine doors were propped open and cordite charged linen bags piled up outside the doors ready to go on the hoists up to the uh, the turret gun houses. Now, I'd say this is uh, they're carrying the seeds of their own destruction here. uh, And uh, we'd see the the consequences of this at the Battle of Jutland. And if you want to know more about the Battle of Jutland, there's books to read. uh, My book uh, with Nigel Steele, uh, which is, I think, called Battle of Jutland... (laughs) Death in the Grey Waste, that's it. That's it. Uh, and uh, the other thing is uh, our series of podcasts where there were, I think, about... It, I think the podcasts were longer than the battle. But they substantial margin. Yeah, they There's were. about 12 podcasts, and we'd love you to listen to them. And thank you for joining us. One thing we would like to raise is that uh, we'd like some reviews of our book, Laugh or Cry. Why would we like reviews, Gary? Well, mainly because it might help with the sales. Our sales good, Gary. Are we, are we going to be rich? Yes, rich be beyond my imagination. Unimaginative Gary, they call me. Yeah. Uh, so if you have got the book and you liked it, or, you know, uh, just a or review. if you didn't. Yeah, a review on Amazon, perhaps saying what you did like, what you didn't like. If you can't be bothered, just rate it. Uh, you know, um, just put the stars on. But reviews really help. And to be honest, sales are dreadful. If just all you listeners would buy our book, we'd be able to retire to the south of France. As opposed to the south of Tottenham. Yes. <laughs> Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Are you buggering Pete. off back to the south of Tottenham now? Cheers, Pete. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash pg. MH or visit www.blablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablabl